0: Again, the URL is unchangedcrypto.substack.com.
1: Not a dividend. It's the tale of two quan. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet.
2: Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless, anyways. Unnamed um, uh, trading know. firms who are very involved. Um, I
3: like that the ultimate. Problem.
4: DeFi protocols are part of the antidote to this problem.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the chopping block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. Quick intros. First out, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next out, we've got Robert, the crypto connoisseur and captain of Compound. Next, we've got Tarun, the Giga Brain and grand poobah at Gauntlet. And joining us today, special guests, we've got Pac-Man, the baron of blur. And then finally, you've got myself, I'm Steve, the head hype man at Dragonfly. So the four of us are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see choppingblock.xyz for more information. So, Pac-Man, great to have you on the show. I see you're here uh, in the in flesh and bone. Uh, I assume that's what you really look like. <laughs> the,
0: real Pac- yep. <laughs> the real human Pac-Man, yeah. Uh, the real
1: human Pac-Man. You know, usually I see that you don't present as yourself, but I'm glad for this show you've unveiled your, your true colors. Great to have you joining us, man.
0: Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me.
1: It's got to have been a crazy week for you. So quick, by way of background, Pac-Man is one of the founders of Blur. Uh, he is operating pseudonymously. I want to caveat before we get into the show that Dragonfly, we are investors in the Blur token, so we're you know full, 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 full disclosures. But this, it's basically been within the last week that the Blur airdrop has gone live and the token has started trading, and uh, you guys are now by far the biggest publicly tradable NFT token. Uh, how does it feel? It must be absolutely crazy for you.
0: Yeah, it's been absolutely incredible. Definitely very satisfied with the results so far. Fair enough.
1: <laughs> Satisfies a good answer.
3: Wow, that, 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 sound, that sounds like a, an earnings call type of phrase.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Robert, you're, you're the only other person here who's had a token launch, besides Tom and his meme token. You're the only other one who's had like a real legit token launch. I, 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 I don't know because I've never had that experience and I hope never to because it sounds horrifying. Wait, there's no Dragonfly token? When's
4: the Dragonfly airdrop?
1: <laughs> you guys are definitely eligible when it's live, but so far we're, uh, you know, we don't want we don't reveal too much about the, the criteria for mining it, but what does it feel like? What does it tell me what it's like to launch a token? What does it feel like?
0: Yeah, honestly, it's mainly exhaustion, you know, in the 48 hours leading up to the token launch, I, I literally did not sleep. So it was like 5am and we were slated for a 9am PT, you know, 12pm ET token launch. And there was just still some like final to do's to finish up. So I was like, okay, I'm going to try to like sleep for 30 minutes, close my eyes for 30 minutes, could not sleep, uh, woke Ooh. up, had a coffee, um, you know, went through the token launch, we we delayed 90 minutes, of course, and then launched. And it was just like, absolutely insane. Everything held up, which was phenomenal. And then uh, I had a few interviews later in the day, and uh, still was not able to sleep until probably around like, three, four a.m. that evening. So first time in my life that i stayed up for 48 hours straight which was uh, quite interesting
1: no wow that's intense robert what was the what was the day that you launched comp token like it was a very different time
0: you know i
4: don't even remember at this point it was so many years ago you know i just remember you know the excitement of wondering what would happen next right and wondering you know how would it get used and wondering you know when would it get used and wondering you know you know, was there a bug, you know, at that point, you know, most of the code was tested, but new. And at this point, you know, governance tokens and governance systems are, you know, run of the mill. But really, it was just a sense of just like wondering, you know, what would happen next? Because it was, you know, in 2020, it was, you know, a very different era, and there was a lot less tokens being launched. And so, you know, I I feel like, you know, for anyone that's gone through the process, it's, you know, it, it's mostly just like, you know, curious, you know, observation.
1: And does it feel like it's different to launch token today than it was back then? Or is it basically the same, like, adrenaline rush as it must have been in 2020?
4: Well, in 2020, it was scary, right? Because, like, there was, <laughs> you know, so many fewer of them. You know, now I, I feel like, you know, there's a, there's a playbook you know, and granted, you know, everyone innovates on the playbook and Blur is not doing it the exact same way as everyone else does, you know, but then it was anxiety, you know, inducing.
1: I can imagine. Okay, well, so speaking of the playbook, so I wanted to kind of structure this episode as a bit of a case study because Blur has been one of the most incredible kind of developments of a a new product in crypto. And there's a lot of really interesting things you guys have done strategically to break into the NFT market, the market of NFT marketplaces. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little bit of setup before we jump into kind of getting your perspective around the strategy of how you've done Blur. But a lot of people, I think, who are listening probably don't know that much about, about Blur or even about the history of how Blur came to be. And so the history of that really starts with OpenSea. So OpenSea, I think everybody in crypto knows OpenSea, the largest NFT platform historically. They basically had a monopoly going into essentially, you know, mid-2022. They were the dominant platform by far when NFTs really kicked off in late 2020. Uh, Last year, they did $21 billion in GMV. They had over $500 million in fees, uh, raised enormous amounts of capital at really crazy valuations. And OpenSea, historically, they always enforced royalties. And royalties are going to be kind of at the center of a lot of the the conversation and the strategy that Blur really innovated on. So for a lot of people, so we had a, a big debate about royalties on the chopping block, This was like three months ago, back when Magic Eden first uh, turned off royalties. And uh, for those of you who didn't catch that, royalties are basically when, anytime there's a trade of an NFT, if you enforce royalties, that basically means that you're enforcing a percentage of that trade as a fee to go back to the NFT issuer. So if Yuga Labs, uh, they're the issuer of Bored Apes. Uh, If you trade a Bored Ape, then if they... If, if, if this marketplace is enforcing royalties, they will take you know, X percent of that trade and they'll send it back to Yuga Labs as a sort of fee for any uh, anytime their collection is traded. And historically, these were always enforced. Now, royalties, though, are not enforceable at the protocol layer. There is no way to enforce royalties directly in the code. And this is kind of the weird thing about royalties that a lot of people don't understand. Royalties are actually more of a norm than they are something embedded into the software. So now this norm has always been enforced basically because, you know, in part because OpenSea just dominated the market. And everybody kind of understood that like, well, you know, this is part of the the ethos of NFTs is that you do these royalty things and it's all good. But then came Pseudoswap. Uh, Pseudoswap was the first uh, really dominant NFT marketplace that did not enforce royalties. Uh, it It was an AMM and the AMMs just, you know, they just decided not to do royalties. And they started gaining a lot of market share that pushed Magic Eden to start not enforcing royalties. And that triggered the conversation that we had about this big NFT royalty debate. Uh, And then OpenSea finally felt the pressure to do something. But what they did was very interesting. What they did was that they allowed you to continue enforcing royalties on OpenSea only if you blocked competitors that did not enforce royalties. Um, So pac talk us through what that was like when you guys saw OpenSea going through this move, what did you think? How did you understand what they were doing strategically? Because Blur was already live at that point.
0: Yeah, it was, it was quite interesting. You know, you're totally right that it kicked off with Sudo. And it's somewhat of a, basically a prisoner's dilemma when it comes to royalty enforcement across marketplaces. And Sudo was kind of the first defector, you know, in the space. And what happened from there was uh, within a month of Sudo's launch, Gem which is actually owned by OpenSea uh, integrated Sudo into its aggregator and Gem at the time was was the leading marketplace aggregator NFT aggregator basically it lets you you know buy listings across marketplaces you know Blur is now the largest uh, aggregator and marketplace by far but at the time Gem was the largest and they integrated Sudo and it was quite a surprising move because from our perspective it seemed to be antithetical to OpenSea's entire position it seemed like it would cannibalize their own business. Why would you, you know, actively support a protocol that is, you know, circumventing a fee that you're adding into your own marketplace? And it was very clear to us that it would kickstart this domino effect that would be, you know, something that the the entire space in general didn't want. So what happened after was after Gem integrated Sudo within three days, X2Y2, which was another leading marketplace at the time uh, prior to Blur's launch, um, they went to optional royalties immediately, and they cited Gem's move as the reason for why. Uh, And then now both of those marketplaces were gaining share, you know, due to a lower fee structure and we launched. And basically our goal was to pull traders away from those zero royalty marketplaces by giving them a carrot. And the carrot was, we're going to give a larger airdrop to traders who honor some royalties, at least compared to honor no royalties. And then, you know, within a few weeks, uh, there were a few hot collections that launched that Blur ended up winning a lot of volume on. And then OpenSea came out with this approach. And it was somewhat surprising to us because there are two reasons why it was surprising. One was it fundamentally altered the culture of the space where it suddenly became okay for collection creators to put in, you know, whitelists or blacklists into the native asset, the NFT itself, basically it introduced centralization into the underlying asset. And that was just to us such a slippery slope that was basically against the entire ethos of this space. You know, if you're gonna introduce centralization in that way, why not just trade a JPEG on a server and, you know, you can pay with ETH and, you know, like it it gets you the same thing. You can enforce royalties that way, but it kind of just like went against what what we felt was really awesome about NFTs, which is this, you know, permissionless asset that can trade anywhere around the world 24 seven. Once you own it, you own it. It's yours to do with, with it what you want. And so they introduced this and they basically made it okay for the collections to, you know, basically start introducing centralization into the underlying asset. And then not only did it do this, but also we know from DeFi that you can't really enforce these types of restrictions at a technical level. Like if there's always workarounds, Um, you can always create like wrappers, you can do code golf. Like, you know, people have tried to make tokens that can't go below a certain value and it's like, it never works. Um, so, so many of these attempts have been made in DeFi already. And, you know, at the end of the day, whether you're restricting an ERC-20 or an ERC-721, they're all just tokens that you're restricting. You know, NFTs at a technical level, you know, they're still assets on Ethereum. So it was clear to us that, okay, this, this could be an effective temporary measure, but it's not an effective long-term measure. And at this, you know, while ineffective, they also just kind of permanently change the culture of the space at the same time. So it just kind of seemed like a double whammy. Um, That was very unfortunate. We, at the time, actually adopted that policy within um, a week because we saw that, you know, obviously OpenSea at the time was the leading marketplace. It was very clear that there'd be a shift from the creators. Like if you just think about from like an EV perspective, like, you know, a collection creator basically has to adopt uh, OpenSea's like filter policy. And then, you know, if the royalties were going to be enforced in a temporary state, we might as well you know, play along in the prisoner's dilemma and cooperate. Because, you know, as long as for us, as long as there was something that was being adhered to at a cultural level, we thought it was reasonable for us to continue to enforce royalties on those collections until, you know, until someone defected again, effectively. So we adopted it, but it just, it didn't really make sense to us. Wait,
1: so when you adopted it, did OpenSea remove you from that default block list?
0: No, actually, it was really funny. They, uh, they did not because, um, you know, when we adopted it, we said, we'll adopt it for collections that uh, incorporate this filter. But for collections that don't incorporate this filter, and including existing collections, like older collections like Azuki or Board Apes, you know, these were really decentralized assets, right? That's you know one of the reasons why we think that they're still the blue chips, is that they're really these decentralized assets. And they didn't have any sort of way to restrict the trading. So they could still trade on pseudo, They could still trade trade on X2Y2. So when we considered that, it just didn't make sense to enforce the full royalties on those collections because it was obvious that the traders who are very price sensitive, they would go to you know those alternative venues, but they uh, OpenSea basically said, uh, because Blur isn't doing that, they're not going to be removed from the filter list.
1: I see. So, even though you guys are trying to play nice, they're like, no, screw Blur, like, we're not going to take them off. I think a lot of people who are listening to this conversation who are not very deep in NFTs might be confused about why we keep talking about royalties. royalties, royalties, royalties. It seems like royalties is like at the heart of this big conflict between all the big marketplaces in NFTs. Maybe just, just, just to kind of build the intuition, why are royalties so fraught? Why are they so important? Why are people arguing about them? Because we're not talking about fees, right? Fees are also another element of it, which is that you know, uh, uh, OpenSea has the highest uh, take rate of any of the NFT exchanges. But the big fight has been over royalties. Why do you think it is that royalties are this giant battleground?
0: Yeah, I think a lot of it is path dependency. To be honest, you know, the way the way the NFT culture started was PFPs, like larger collections, they weren't the norm. It was initially like one of one art, you know, like small batch collections. And for like one of one artists, you know, this whole concept of royalties made a lot of sense because collectors of those collections, they have a very personal relationship with the art and they have a personal relationship with the artists. And they'll oftentimes want to pay the royalty because they want to honor the artists and help sustain them. Um, it's a really beautiful thing. PFP collections, as they got big, it kind of became the norm to still have the royalties. And it kind of became like the default way that a lot of these collections would monetize, not from like a total monetary perspective, but from like a cultural perspective. So, you know, if you look at like Yuga Labs, for example, like they make most of their money off of the mints and, and actually a, a very small proportion of the money that they've made has been off of the royalties. But I think it just kind of became the norm for everyone to expect. when we When we looked at the market, it seemed rather suboptimal from, uh, from a value capture perspective for the collection creators, to be honest, because you know, in, in any sort of financial market, any increase in take rates results in a nonlinear decrease in trading volume. If you decrease the take rates, you can have significantly more trading volume. You can have tighter spreads, more liquidity. Um, there's a lot of things. And then there's a lot of things that can only happen once you have more liquidity. And it felt to us like the space was kind of being held back by this norm that wasn't actually long-term optimal. But it was the norm because that's kind of how, uh, you know, how the space started effectively.
1: That makes sense. Okay, so there's, there's a lot of kind of cultural path dependence to how royalties played out and how they became such a, an important battleground, both symbolically, financially, and even emotionally for why all these exchanges were fighting with each other over this concept of royalties and trying to enforce them on chain through blacklisting each other and doing all this other uh, all this other complicated stuff.
3: You could argue that royalties were sort of like liquidity mining for artists and that it like attracted artists at a certain time, you know, in 2021 where you're basically arguing that they got this like annuity that would, you know, be there perpetually and that's why you should put your art in an NFT. And I think, like, what there's, yeah, there's just some point at which it became an unreasonable subsidy relative to, to like market friction. Also, by the way, has Steve, we all know this this episode is your victory lap episode.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. So go ahead, Tom.
2: No, I totally agree. I think um, from my conversations with artists and galleries, a lot of them initially viewed, you know, because digital art has been around for, for a while, but a lot of them viewed the you know, attraction of NFTs as, you know, a reaching a bigger market, but also getting access to the secondaries. It was kind sort of sort of a very like semi-famous moment where, like, not an artist, but Mark Cuban was talking about tokenizing, you know, Cavs tickets and letting them trade um, on like an NFT exchange. And then someone was like, "No, like, you know, you know, you can't enforce the royalties on chain." And he's like, "Wait, what's the point of the tokenization then? If I don't get you know, the second the <laughs> secondary fees?" And so I was like, "I think even you know somewhat sophisticated people sort of sort of missed this point." Wait, 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 wait. Are we, are, we're, we're calling Mark Cuban, who lost a lot of his money in iron finance, uh, the sophisticated <laughs> person here, we, uh, just just, ch- just checking. I, I, I'm trying to be kind. I'm trying to be kind on the pod today.
1: So the, the other thing that always struck me as strange about this story about royalties, and I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm
2: trying not to take too much of a victory laugh
1: because I did predict that this would happen. But the, the thing that also struck me as strange is that crypto, you know, in crypto, we find a way to tokenize almost everything. Right, pretty much anything that can be on chain, we find some way to break it down into tokens and trade it. But for some reason, people never did that to royalties. They never tokenized their royalty stream and then sold it to third parties. Um, there were a few projects that did this here and there, but it wasn't widespread. It wasn't common. But this seems like the obvious way to understand what royalties are, right? Like when an artist you know, ends up working with a music label, what they do is they end up basically selling off vast majority of their royalties to the label, right? In order to basically get an upfront payment to Allow them to go create art or whatever, do you know take and also take away most of their risk. If NFT artists had done this, what they would find is that actually you can just sell this off for a lump sum payment and basically sell it, you know, you could have sold it to the exchange in the first place. So there's nothing about even the nature of royalties that guarantees that they are structured as an annuity. If you just sold it off upfront, which you know you could in principle, then um, I think the norms would have been very different if in fact when royalties were created that they were initially tokenized and most people would just sell them alongside the initial nft mint
0: yeah i think it's it's very interesting you know ultimately i think especially on on twitter what ends up happening is there's no nuance that's allowed in any of these conversations and there's nuance at multiple levels there's there's nuance in the types of nfts right so like pfp like large pfps like azuki or azuki or yuga like those are like venture-backed companies like those are startups and that's a very different beast than like a one-of-one artist that sells like super rare and a collector that's buying a bunch of art is very different than a retail user who's a newcomer is very different than a trader who is going to be very price sensitive uh, is different than like a market maker um, and, you now, now after our token launch, um, you know, there are a lot more market makers in the space than there were before, which is something that's quite interesting, um, which is what, you know, what we were hoping for ultimately. But, you know, basically there are all these different demographics and, and use cases and the conversation has only ever been a binary, you know, will you fully enforce royalties or not fully enforce royalties? And it's like the market has tried to apply a one size fits all solution to a market that is actually very segmented. So it was just like, it was just very surprised, not surprising. I think I don't, I'm not surprised anymore, but it was more so just, it was like, okay, this is going to be a short term, like noise effectively, because this conversation, like the market will do what the market is going to do. This conversation can prevent it for a little bit, but the market is ultimately what's going to win out at the end of the day. And you can't really stop the market forces. So it just seemed kind of like an inevitability, but it was, it was a conversation that lasted for a lot longer than, than I think it, it needed to. And we could have focused on more productive conversations, but it, it wasn't able to just because of the lack of nuance.
1: Hundred percent, yeah. All markets tend toward efficiency over time, especially as they become more competitive. But okay, let's let's continue on with the case study. So okay, so OpenSea, thousand pound gorilla, they they start blacklisting you guys for collections that that uh, are, are if they if they want to enforce full royalties, they have to blacklist Blur as well as Pseudo and a bunch of other stuff. Okay, now separately, you guys are doing. So sort of two things that are happening, I think, on the Blur side. So one is that you guys observe the rise of aggregators like Gem and Genie. Blur launches as an aggregator initially, but then you also have your own proprietary liquidity, meaning that instead of just being a pass-through to being able to shop on a bunch of other exchanges, you can list items directly onto Blur and onto Blur's order book. And part of what was so brilliant about Blur and and I think a big contributor to you guys' success was the nature of your liquidity mining program. So if you look at the other two big, upstart tokenized NFT exchanges, X2, Y2, and LooksRare. Both of them had token, airdrop, mining, whatever programs, uh, but they were both terribly designed in that most of what they incentivized was wash trading. And in fact, we see, if you look at the metrics on chain, enormous amounts of wash trading. Hill Dobby from Dragonfly posted some great analysis showing how much of the volume on these two exchanges can be easily identified to be wash trading. Talk us through what did X2, Y2, and LooksRare do wrong What did you learn from them about how not to design a liquidity mining program and what you guys did instead?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So for context, Blur started 400 days ago. So today's day 400 for us at Blur. And if you zoom out and go back to uh, January of last year, it's really interesting because as soon as we started working on Blur, uh, LooksRare launched about like a week or two after, and then X2Y2 launched soon after that. Uh, Gem as well launched about at the same time. So all of these players that came into the market, they came into the market right as we started building Blur, and so we had to start from a point of uh, building from you know behind everyone and you know shipping faster than the competition to to eventually pull ahead. But something that we benefited from, even though you know having a late start is was was uh, frustrating, is we got to observe what looks where x to Y two did, and what we learned was that, you know, clearly the airdrop program that looks Rare did was incredibly successful. Like it got everyone talking about looks Rare. It got so many users into the funnel, but you know, if, if you spend any time in, you know, web to e-commerce startups, you know, you'll know that you can, you know, put as much money as you want into like Facebook ads to acquire users. But ultimately if you don't have the retention, you're basically just burning uh, money. And, you know, that was kind of what we saw with these marketplaces where they did these massive airdrop campaigns, it was very good for customer acquisition at the top of the funnel, but the products themselves, and the niches that they were serving were not, were not good. And there's two issues with it. One was the marketplaces themselves just like were not really that great, like they were effectively competing with OpenSea. But at the product level, they were worse. And also, if you study Web2 marketplaces, you can see that it's basically impossible to actually unseat a large marketplace once it has established network effects. Like even Craigslist, you know, they haven't changed their product in, in like 20 years and they still do about like a billion uh, in revenue every year. So network effects are really, really strong. The only way that you can actually create a new marketplace or exchange or, or anything that relies on network effects is, is you have to target a different segment. You see this in the token world where, you know, even though Coinbase was very dominant, Binance came out, they targeted the crypto natives and they created a better product for them and then expanded from there. FTX as well, actually uh, pulled off the strategy very effectively. You know, their big issue was stealing everyone's money. But outside of that, like they actually had a really good product. Like most of the people that I know, they actually preferred trading on FTX, you know, even though FTX launched so late in 2019. So the two big issues that we saw were that they launched and with a worse product, and they didn't have a product that could retain people. And then they they incentivized wash trading. Uh, they incentivized volume. Whenever you incentivize volume, basically what you'll have is some MEV guy will do a uh, you know or girl or they uh, will do a EV calculation and be like, okay, I can trade this much amount and I'll get this much in you know tokens back, and then I can sell them, and then there's a profit, and I'm just gonna keep on doing that. And what that means is that you're bringing in wash traders into your market. You're not actually bringing in real users. And so we avoided that by only incentivizing liquidity and never volume. And that resulted in real users coming into the market.
1: So incentivizing liquidity though is subtle, right? It's very easy to know how to incentivize trading volume. How do you incentivize liquidity without letting it be gamed?
0: Yeah, it's quite, it's quite difficult. I think a really good model here is if you look at Curve, uh, Curve has done a great job incentivizing. So on Curve, right, it's like you're you're only rewarded for providing liquidity for the stablecoin pairs, and uh, you don't actually get any rewards for trading the stablecoins, right? The, the only reason you trade is because they have such great liquidity, and so that's a great setup. Um, it's it's quite easy for Curve to kind of do a calculation there because you have stablecoins that are like fungible assets. Uh, for NFTs, they are non fungible assets, so it's it's pretty difficult. Um, you know, when we did our, our, uh, airdrops, basically we incentivized listings and we didn't publicize any sort of formula for it because, um, it's difficult to design a formula that is like a one size fits all solution. You know, these are non-fungible assets. So, um, you know, you could incentivize just floor listings, but then what you get is, you know, people aren't going li- to list their mids or their rares, right? There's different tiers of NFTs and you're just going to get people listing all the items near the floor. And also like, that's not even necessarily what you want, because now you just get a ton of, uh, you know, massive cell walls that are very difficult to break through. Uh, and that's not necessarily a good outcome. So listing incentives are quite difficult. Bidding incentives are a lot easier. Actually, we were able to basically have a single formula for that because, you know, bids are, it's just like liquidity on a, a trading pair, right? So you can, you can look at the liquidity and because it's fungible, you can come up with some formulas for doing it. And it works pretty similarly to curve where you basically you know, take the integral of like the the bid over time, and and then you have basically like some 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 value function over time that you can assign to each bid based on its position in the order book. You know, without getting too much into the weeds, basically you can you can come up with a pretty good formula for for bidding. It's quite difficult for listing, but you know we did our best, and you know it it, it worked uh, even though it was kind of opaque.
1: The so Robert, what are your thoughts as the granddaddy of liquidity mining? What are your thoughts as? The the concept of liquidity mining has gotten more and more complex with trying to do that for NFTs now.
4: Well, the prefits, you know, when compound began the distribution of computers, there, there was no phrase called liquidity mining. It wasn't intended to be liquidity mining. It was sort of an accidental byproduct. You know, I think the science behind all of this has evolved a hundredfold, you know, in the two-ish years, two and a half years uh since. I mean, like two and a half years ago is like the stone age when it comes to creating and scaling protocols. Um, you know, back then it was basically just playing with rocks and sticks. Now it's, you know, I, I think Blur is bringing science to this in a way that there was no science back in the day, right? Um, I, I, I completely agree with the point that you want to, you know, create underlying like genuine liquidity or not trying to get like wash trading or like things that don't contribute value back to the protocol. You know, I think that is one of the intelligent things that, you know blur is doing where you you seen issues like this on looks rare and other platforms where it's just it's it's junk behavior it's not like useful behavior and so by focusing on the provision of liquidity like that's what makes the actual marketplace better and so by focusing on that i think it's the correct area to focus on
1: i remember when we were looking at all the nft marketplaces like we we really wanted to back one of these upstart marketplaces but Every time that we looked at the liquidity mining programs, they were just so obviously wrong. Like centralized exchanges figured this out a while ago. Like ever since Fcoin, people have known that trade mining is broken. It's just wrong. Like you, it's the wrong thing to do. And every time you do it, you will get the same result, which is wash trading. You just get tons and tons of wash trading. Um, but designing, like you said, Pac-Man doing this for NFTs is complicated. It requires a lot of careful thinking and making sure that, again, you're not like there. There's so many different ways to game protocols that are on chain, where you don't exactly know who this person is, you can't exactly tell, you know, is this person on the other side actually, uh, you know, a counterparty making a legitimate trade. And so it's all about mechanism design and thinking very carefully about, you know, if you were, it's very it's very much about adversarial thinking. If you were a airdrop farmer, uh, or an adversarial, you know, airdrop miner, uh, how would you do it? And how can you defeat them as best you can?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's It's quite interesting. There's so many different ways that people would try to game it, you know, just on the on the bid side, um, you know, one thing that is very common that we see, and it's, it's funny, I wish the I wish like the exploiters would just kind of give a little bit more respect to some of the, some of the ever put in because like one of the obvious things that people do is they'll, um, they'll, of course, try to like civil attack, like they'll split up their bids across different accounts. And the reason why you want to do that is in case the the points get like curved at all, right? So if they get curves on the upper end, you obviously want to split it into a lot of the different small accounts. Another one is, you know, people keep their bids up. And then if they see a, a transaction, in the mempool, someone trying to sell into it, they'll immediately withdraw their ETH from the bidding pool. And it's like, you know, this is the most obvious, you know, ploy ever, you just like, you can just like query for that so easily and detect that and and filter that out. And then you of a reward scheme. And there are more like advanced way, uh, like, you know, modifications of that scheme. Uh, that we're aware of. But, you know, ultimately, it's pretty, it's pretty hard to, you know, cheat it on the bidding side, because it's like, you know, liquidity, whether you're farming or placing a bid, you know, completely just because you want to like buy an item, if someone sells into it, like liquidity is liquidity. And as long as your liquidity is staying up there, you're taking risk because someone can always sell into your bid, and so you're you know you're providing real value there, and unless you're trying to like game it by making it so your bid like can't be sold or something that like can't be bought into, which is pretty easy to detect, you're ultimately taking real risk when you bid so it is it is like a really nice structure where we are able to kind of effectively assign like a real point system and formula to the bidding incentives and and that worked quite well
1: okay, so if I had to sort of uh, take a high-level summary of what made Blur successful, like what the playbook was. I think it started with aggregation, kind of learning from Jem and Genie, which came before you guys. The second prong was the liquidity mining, which started creating the proprietary order book uh, that allowed you guys to start competing toe-to-toe with OpenSea. Then let's go back to the royalty side because the royalty is really where the drama accelerated, particularly within the last couple of weeks. Uh, this is the part that I think at some day, there will be a Harvard Business School case study on what happened between you guys and, Royal, and uh, OpenSea on royalties. So, you guys wrote this blog post uh, very recently where you encouraged your creators to start blocking OpenSea instead of blocking Blur. Talk us through what happened there. What, what was the, what was the gambit? How did you think of this up?
0: Yeah. So, you know, ultimately, we've always maintained the position, and, and we've shared from day one that any sort of on-chain filter system is circumventable. We didn't do anything uh, since November was when OpenSea kind of first came out with their filter system. We didn't do anything for three months, basically, because we were still thinking through, you know, what, what position makes sense. We really didn't want to put something out there and then have to change our position. You know, we saw this happen on Solana where Magic Eden they tweeted, we will never get rid of royalties. And then like, literally four weeks later, they changed their <laughs> position. And it was just, it was just like, not a good look, you know, because it's like, if you just like think through the problem, it's like very obvious that you, you can't like, unless you can enforce it on chain, there's just no way you can actually maintain that promise. You know, otherwise, you know, Magic Eden would have to go to their shareholders and say, hey, like, we're going to do like, we're doing this, and we're maintaining this, and we're going to lose market share. And no one's going to trade on us, but like, you know, we're going to maintain this position. Like they would have to go and do that. And obviously they're not going to go and do that. And, and they did it. And OpenSea was basically taking a similar approach. We really didn't want to put out any sort of approach that we'd have to, you know, go back with our, on our word on. So whenever, when we came out initially, we said, you know, we'll adopt this filter policy. It was like a week after OpenSea came out with their policy. We said, we'll adopt this as long as it's not getting circumvented. And then if it does get circumvented, then we'll, then we'll change our policy uh, to match. And uh, we didn't do anything. We started seeing some new marketplaces come out that were, uh, you know, taking a royalty circumvention approach to growth, which was fairly obvious. We, we knew it was going to happen. We knew it was going to happen from, you know, from the moment that the system was introduced. But, you know, we, we kind of bided our time because we didn't want to take action unless it was ne- needed. We started, we started to see that happen. And then, uh, and then basically, we just kind of put into to, uh, action the plan that we had from the beginning, which is um, you just need to make it so that the only like plus EV move for OpenSea is to basically remove blur from the filter list. And the way we did that was, we said, you know, if your collection blocking blur, you know, you're, it's still going to be tradable on blur, it's just going to be tradable without the full royalties with a minimum 0. 5%. But if you block OpenSea, it'll be tradable with full royalties. And then, you know, of course, the the only plus EV move there is to start blocking uh, OpenSea, and and then you started to see that, and then you know within within two days, OpenSea had decided to remove Blur from the block list, and then they basically matched our policy.
1: So can you can you go into some of the gory details, like how was this move possible? And I think maybe some details about Seaport and all this might be helpful for people to understand how this worked.
0: Yeah, there are, there are multiple ways that you can do it. You know, you can create contracts that basically, you know, the way that the block worked was it, it was a very primitive block. It basically was, um, you know, whenever you trade an NFT, you have to approve a contract to spend it similar to how, when you like trade your week on Uniswap, you have to, you know, approve Uniswap to to spend the week. And uh, basically this uh, filter that obviously created would, uh, you know, look at the address that was being approved and, and basically just fail if, if it was like a, a blacklisted address. And so, you know, you could obviously just like switch addresses, but then they can like update their filter list. You can do something dynamic where, you know, sudo kind of has like a dynamic pool system where each pool has a different address, so that makes it like harder. You know, for us, we we felt like it would just be easier instead of, you know, changing the marketplace protocol, we could just use seaport itself, uh which is OpenSea's, you know, marketplace protocol that they that they rely on. And they're not going to block their own marketplace protocol, of course. So we basically just used their own protocol and then and then there wasn't really much that they could do uh, about it.
1: So this is like a Trojan horse type attack. It almost seems like the best analogy, which is that once you start piggybacking on their own infrastructure, you became like, you know, it's, it's they sort of needed to do some kind of chemotherapy type approach if they wanted to save themselves from being able to still block blur. Is that a fair summary?
0: Yeah, ultimately that is fair. And, you know, we like We don't try to glow or parade things around at all. Ultimately, it's just, you know, this- (laughs) It's
1: all right, we'll gloat on your behalf because it it was pretty
0: amazing to watch.
1: I gotta be honest, we were were, were floored when we saw what you guys were doing on chain.
0: Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Um, You know, ultimately just the moves that they were making, just it didn't make sense to us. It didn't seem like it was actually furthering the space. It seemed like a very self-protective move. You know, I think they brilliantly framed it as a pro-creator move uh even though it was very you know clear to us that it was it was not it was not a pro creator move and I think that the rest of the space kind of saw that um you know just a few days ago when they switched things up to to many people's surprise.
1: So let's talk about that. So you guys throw down the gauntlet you say, hey guess what? If you want to block us, you have to block yourself. And creators should instead join us and block OpenSea if they want to be receiving full royalties on Blur. And within what was it like within a few days?
0: Yeah, I was
1: like, 48 hours. Okay. So within 48 hours, OpenSea announces for the first time ever, after being throughout their entire history, the highest, ex- the highest fee and full royalty enforcing exchange through all of the NFT boom, for the first time ever, they announce that they are no longer enforcing royalties and they're going to zero fees for a temporary period of time, basically all of a sudden to try to win back market share. And in their explanation... They basically say, "Look, guys, we tried our best. We love the creators. We really tried to to fight for you, but you know the 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 capitalists are here. They've broken down the doors. There's nothing we can do anymore uh, to to protect you from their uh, from their savagery." Uh, what 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 was that like for you guys when you saw this happen? What was going through your mind?
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's fine. I I won't I won't reveal too much because I do I do try to respect the privacy, but. You know, in general, we've tried not to antagonize OpenSea. We we like to be cordial when we can. We've had conversations with them. We had a conversation with them before they made this move about mm. enforcing royalties on collections that um that you know were whitelisting both Blur and OpenSea at the same time. And you know, I made it very clear to them: it's like we don't we don't want to be antagonistic here. Like, let's just try to find a solution, and uh, that makes sense for everyone. Like, it was. You know, when, if you read in our blog posts, you know, what we say at the bottom, uh, you know, why it has an open C remove blur from their block list. And we say, you know, I think that they have the same goal, but we just have different perspectives on, on what makes sense as a solution. And we try to be be neutral. And then before they made the announcement, I was like, Hey, like, you know, like, let's keep on trying to collaborate, like hoping you make like a neutral announcement. And then we read the tweet thread and it's like, blur is the reason why that we're going to zero fees And I was like, Oh, my God, this is definitely not neutral. Um, So I was just kind of like shocked. Initially, I was like, it, the tone was just like very surprising to me. It was was very disappointing, honestly. But then I think I think the there was an incredible outpouring of support from the community um, towards blur afterwards, I think a lot of the community kind of Saw the market and the players and the motivations behind the players in the same way that, that we saw versus before. I feel like there was more of like a rose colored lens that just wasn't actually matching reality. So it was kind of validating in a way because, you know, since, since we had launched, like after, after OpenSea launched the operator filter, collections would launch and they actually, you know, it was just so confusing for collections, like popular collections launched and they didn't know how to implement the operator filter. And we literally would help them block blur so that they wouldn't trade on blur, uh, because OpenSea would zero out royalties if a collection traded on blur. So we we're literally like helping devs uh, as their collection was launching block blur. And you know, this entire time, the general like sentiment was that blur was like evading royalties and like trying to like hurt royalties. And it was quite upsetting because, you know, we've only ever really tried to maximize royalties, but in a way that is ultimately sustainable, and not not going against the market forces, because it was very clear to us that you know, there, there's going to be a, a sustainable end state at some point in time. This like whiplashing, like full, you know, all or nothing royalty enforcement. It's just, it's just fundamentally unsustainable. So it was very clear to us that it was fundamentally unsustainable. We've really tried to work towards something that was sustainable, but it kind of felt like the entire time that we were antagonized and that kind of started shifting, um, you know, since they made their move. So that, that was validating, I would say.
1: It really is a David versus Goliath story because OpenSea, honestly, throughout all of 2021, 2022, you know, the product was just at a standstill. They were just kind of soaking up all the liquidity, all the trading volume. And we always wondered, like, is when is somebody finally going to take a run at them? And it just felt like you said, you know, it's so hard to unseat marketplaces once they have that that network effect of the buyers and the sellers and liquidity and all that stuff. That um, I was just like, is this ever, is the reign of OpenSea ever gonna end? And within basically the last week, for the first time ever, Blur is the first ever NFT exchange since 2020 to have more volume than OpenSea. Uh, with users, you guys are almost neck and neck for users. It's, it's absolutely insane to watch. And uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's a good reminder that no matter how strong you think a monopoly is, there's always a path to be able to unseat it. And Blur, through a bunch of beautiful strategic moves, you guys have showed a path to do that.
0: Thank you. I will say, you know, the thing, the thing about network effects is they really are so brutally strong, you know, so, so brutally strong. The only reason why we thought that there was a chance was because, you know, even in the bull market, uh, when there are more retail than uh, in the space than there are now, if you just did some basic data analysis, you could see that actually the, the majority of volume was driven by a small handful of power users. And any sort of, you know, speculative or financialized market over time professionalizes. You saw this in the token trading market where you started with like Mt. Gox and like Coinbase, very retail friendly way to buy and sell crypto. And then over time, you have more and more professionalized infrastructure develop, Binance, OKX, Deribit, you know, Huobi, um, all of these more advanced trading platforms arise. And then, of course, the volume professionalizes. And now it's like a handful of market makers make up the vast majority of volume in the space. It was very clear to us that NFTs were heading in that direction. And then even in the bull market, NFTs were very much you know, power law driven. So the only reason why it was possible was because structurally the market was not sound as it was. No one was serving the power users. It's funny because as we were building Blur, we had so much commentary about how it would be impossible for Blur to you know, make a dent in the network. You know, OpenSea's network were, effects were too strong. And then now that we came out on, on top and have more volume than them, we see a lot of comments like, oh, blur succeeding just shows that anyone can still market share from any of these marketplaces at any point in time. And it's like, <laughs> it's just, it's really, it's, it's funny because it's just like, that's, that's not actually how the market works. The, the network effects are incredibly sticky. The only thing that is possible is if there's a huge unmet need in the market, there's really only two segmentations that make sense. It's retail and professional. No one was serving the professional market before Blur, but now that Blur is dominant amongst the professional market, you know, the same things that made OpenSea so hard to unseat are going to be the same things that make Blur so hard to unseat. So, you know, of course, as, as core contributors, I genuinely think, I genuinely think that, you know, staying paranoid at all times is the right operating model. So it's not about, you know, resting on our laurels or anything like that, but it's just, you know, people who say, Oh, like blur, like this. You know, blur succeeding just shows how weak these network effects are. They're they're not they're not accurate at all about that.
1: I think it's also a sign that like so you guys had to get so many things right to unseat OpenSea, right? Like there were sort of multiple, or another way to describe that is that OpenSea had to had to mess up in multiple ways in order to end up losing market share to a new upstart exchange. And you know, one can argue about what those strategic mistakes were. But it's very clear, and I think most people kind of had this feeling about OpenSea is that they they kind of had gotten a bit too comfortable with their position, and and this kind of always happens when you have a you effective monopoly that gets knocked down, is that they get very comfortable with this idea that ah you know we kind of we have a lock on this market, we can kind of do what we want, we can set prices however we wish, we don't have to be responsive to to competitors, and suddenly you you they get woken up, and here we are now with uh, both both OpenSea and Blur now having the same fee structure after basically like, you know, a good two years of OpenSea just raking in cash and completely owning the market.
0: Yeah, it's quite interesting because, you know, when we started, our vision for Blur has not changed in the past 400 days, but everything that had to happen, you know, even just, you know, starting and raising our $11 million round from Paradigm, building up a team, you know, primarily through our MIT network, Galaga and I, we recruited you know, through our network from, you know, friends who had worked in trading and real-time systems. So, you know, like our engineers from like Citadel, Five Rings Capital, a very unique engineering team that had the capability to build such a system. And then even then, in that time, we've had to build, you know, in stealth, uh, really nonstop uh, every single day. And also we were reliant on, you know, the existing players basically not catching on and building what we had built until we gained sufficient market share. So all of those things really had to align in order for, you know, blurs to to succeed. And, and then now it's like, we, we see, we just see people in the market being like, Oh, like this, this new player is going to be the next blur or this other player is going to be the next blur. And it's like, it's, if I wish it were that easy for us to get, to get to this position. Um, And also I think a lot of times what I've seen in the market is the NFT space has not internalized the lessons that the DeFi world has internalized, which is like so strange because, you know, it's like, this is all like Web3 crypto, like we're neighbors, but it seems like there's not as much uh, cross-pollination as we would have assumed. And we've seen in DeFi that anytime there's a leading protocol developed, whenever someone copy-pastes it, it can get like some traction, but ultimately, you know, they just, they just get smaller and smaller and smaller. You can't actually gain any share by just copy-pasting, you know, the the leading player. And we see people you know, copy pasting blur and then, you know, excitement for the the copy paste uh, protocols. And it's just like, that's, that's not really how this space works. And it, and I I just, I really wish it were that easy for us, but it it, it wasn't. And, you know, we'll we'll of course stay on our toes and never want to be hubristic, but I would just, it just doesn't really seem like the market internalizes a lot of lessons that are just like, you know, right across the street, really in the DeFi world. I guess one, one thing as an
3: analogy, I'd maybe, Kind of compared to is maybe, maybe this is a, a bad example for some reasons, but, but you mentioned it earlier, Pac Man, which is FTX. You know, I remember in 2018 and 20, 2017, there were just like a million new centralized exchanges. Like everyone and their mom was like, I'm going to make a centralized exchange. Like if you were a Chinese unicorn, you somehow had to have a, I'm making a crypto exchange, centralized exchange plan. And, you know, none of those, Exchanges had any differentiation other than like, hey, we're just going to like bring our users from our app into this, which then of course the Chinese government slapped them in the face and said, you can't. You know, FTX came out of this, this sort of like weird thing where like everyone was kind of negative on crypto exchanges because all of these exchanges that had raised tons of money had kind of like failed. And their main thing was just focusing on sort of the institutional broker dealer type of people. Uh, at the very beginning, so there's a lot of similarities. I feel like in I was this, wondering where
1: you are going to take that, but okay, it's the it's the institutional you know, like prosumer yeah, 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 thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I thought you were going to say like, oh, it's the liquidity from Alameda, and I was like, no. <laughs> Darn, <laughs> I don't think you, <laughs> I don't think you want to go there. Uh, okay, you you know, I take the, your point. The beautiful, though.
0: the beautiful thing there is, yeah, I mean, one of the beautiful things about DApps and on-chain protocols is that you know, unlike the centralized businesses, everything is on-chain everything's verifiable. It's so cool when, when we build and see, you know, there's so like so many of the dashboards that I've wanted to make myself, I just search on Dune, and and there's already something there. And it's great. And it's honestly like they, they made it like look prettier than I would have even made it. So it's like, it's more appealing to to use even internally than anything I would have done. So having everything be on chain is really incredible. I think that there are a lot of parallels, though. And it's, that, that's ultimately what we saw. If you look at the token trading world, you've seen this strategy play out multiple times where Binance did it with you know, Coinbase, right? Like they built this crypto native exchange and then they expanded from there. And then FTX, of course, like token infrastructure is, is even more financialized than NFTs. NFTs are moving in that direction, but obviously it's like still very, very early. Ultimately, you know, FTX pulled a similar strategy where they focused even on even more of a niche. Uh, than than Binance did, and then expanded. Uh, so ultimately, there are there are definitely uh, parallels there. And you know, FTX did not help our growth. But what's cool is that you know all of the growth that Blur experienced has been in the wake of that you know financial crisis that FTX collapsed in the in the worst bear market that we've seen in crypto. So that just makes us you know even more excited about the space because I think the NFTs have really proven to have a longevity and stickiness that no one really expected.
2: I think you made a really good point around sort of these existing players not picking up on the meta shift towards you know, the sort of these professional traders and away from one of ones to PFPs. And we're also leaning into sort of the way PFPs are traded with collection bidding and floor bidding and like you know, sort, sort of this new dynamic versus just having a you know, generic you know, order book that might be more fitting for a different type of asset. What do you think is going to be the new meta shift or the next meta shift in how NFTs are traded? People have been trying to make NFT AMMs for a while, and they've kind of had very you know, middling success. Do you think that's going to be what the future looks like? Or, or how do you sort of see you know, the next generation of, of exchanges?
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, the general trend that, you know, as as contributors we're building towards is ultimately, if you look at token trading infrastructure, you know, it's had a decade to professionalize. And you started with spot trading, and then you had, you know, derivatives, margin, futures, options, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And as that advanced infrastructure was developed, obviously the space, the TAM of the space grew massively, you know, beyond what anyone really expected, we're seeing a similar trend in NFTs, but it is a different asset class. So we've seen a lot of like copy paste attempts where there's, you know, literally like a lot of the protocols, like the NFT five protocols that we've seen today are like literally copying, pasting, DeFi protocols, and just, you know, changing it so that it works with ERC 721s instead of ERC 20s. And, you know, not nothing that we've seen has really excited us. But I will say that I I think that that is the general direction that we're going to see in the space. That's something that we're very excited about, because I think there's just, you know, massive growth there. And obviously something that we're, we're actively researching, but I, I, I wouldn't say I've seen anything, you know, particularly exciting just yet. And when it comes to the AMMs, you know, when when Uniswap launched, there was so much about it because it is a fundamentally very inefficient model. The, there are many reasons why it works. You know, one of the reasons is, you know, for, for centralized exchanges, it's like getting listed is such a pain and you, you know, for most tokens, like they, they can't even get listed on a lot of these exchanges, right? So Uniswap kind of had this, like, if you look at the market structure, you know, Uniswap serves a need that basically like, even though it was so inefficient and shitty, like it was actually the, your best option. Um, And then of course, there's also, you know, some specific regulatory reasons for why they couldn't offer a off-chain order book, like EtherDelta did this and it got shut down. NFTs as digital collectibles, they they operate in a different regulatory environment. You know, all of the marketplaces operate with a, you know, off-chain order book or off-chain Oracle. And when you compare an order book model to an AMM model, the order book model is much more capital efficient so when we when i've seen the excitement around amms and nfts it's it's been quite surprising to me because it is fundamentally a more inefficient model any system that you can design via an amm you can design via an off-chain model more efficiently so it just you know when when we've seen some you know the excitement is you know, never say never, right? It's like the thing about technology is that you can never really predict when things will, will work or, or don't work. You can only kind of take educated guesses, but I would be very surprised if the AMM model really proves to be a, you know, successful leading model in the space.
1: So, Bagma, you talked about how now that blur has really kind of busted out on the scene, a lot of people are murmuring about, oh, this thing's gonna be the next, bla- next blur, that's gonna be the next blur. How do you think Like how do you prevent a blur from getting blurred? How do you stop somebody from aggregating you and doing a similar playbook that you guys did on OpenSea to you?
0: Yeah, I think that when you look at the DeFi world, you've seen this play out already where Uniswap got sushi'd and you know, by literally just being copy-pasted. And then Uniswap came out and they they you know sushi'd sushi by dropping their own token and it you know sucked people back away from sushi. And And then of course, Uniswap won, won out, right? Because soon as she wasn't anything new. When we look at the market structure, it's like, if you had asked us to build a competitor to OpenSea going after retail by introducing a tokenomic model and like liquidity mining, I would have said, you know, find another team to do that because I don't want to waste my time and there's much better things to do. Ultimately, it would have been a I I think a Herculean task, I think basically impossible to actually go after OpenSea's market the same way that uh, going after the same, you know, retail user base, there's not really any sort of token incentive that you can provide that makes up for lack of liquidity, right? So like if if I'm selling like a $50,000 JPEG, it doesn't like, I can't really get enough tokens to make up for the fact that like, if I list on a new marketplace going after the same user, it might not sell at all. And I just can't really justify not listing on like the main marketplace. so there you can't really utilize token incentives, to like make up for a lack of liquidity. You can really only go after a, a, a specific segment that isn't well served. So I think when i when I observe the market, people talk about vertical marketplaces in general. I'm not very bullish on the vertical market thesis. Uh, it's like you don't really see vertical exchanges for tokens, even though there are many different tokens with different use cases you know, I, I think there's a few types of NFTs where, where vertical markets make sense. And I think that you can do something there. Like, for example, ENS, there's a site, ENS Vision, where it's like, you get to type in the names, you can filter by like alphabetically and upload like a big spreadsheet of names. Like, you know, buying and selling domain names is a very different experience than buying and selling, uh, you know, PFPs. And, So like you can carve out a niche there. You don't even need like a token model to do that. Like you can just like carve out a niche there. Maybe the token model can like accelerate things a little bit as like a marketing expense. But, you know, ultimately it it needs to be something where the existing users just not being served very well. And when we evaluate the NFT market today... I don't really see those same horizontal gaps as we saw with, you know, OpenSea and the pro market. You know, maybe that can change, right? It's like hard to predict the future, but as it stands today, you know, people, people talk about like blur getting blurred and it's just like, you know, it's just, I, I really wish it were that easy for us. <laughs> like it would have been just so much easier. Um, you know, I, ha- I literally haven't left uh, the office in a month. Like I would take uh like smoke <laughs> breaks on the balcony. Um, literally haven't even stepped outside. Uh, of the office and just like to imagine you know a team just like casually uh you know dropping a token copy pasting uh our designs and and doing some sort of model and, and vampire attacking blurry would just it would just it would just be surprising
1: I'm sure OpenSea was surprised too when they uh saw this happening to them but I I I take your point and it sounds like you guys have been through a gauntlet to get to where you are and um I guess the the last thing that I want to end on so first of all this was really fantastic insight thanks for sharing this i think you know we spend a lot of our time talking entrepreneurs because of course the four of us are investors and a lot of entrepreneurs especially now after the collapse of ftx and the market kind of being in this weird state a lot of people just feel like you know what can i do you know like how can i how can i actually get some traction how can i actually take on an incumbent when there's so little dynamism in the market not that much is happening and you guys are a perfect example of how just understanding enough about the microstructure of the market and having enough insight about how to create a better product and go after users. You can go after the biggest fish in the industry. You can go after one of the most highly valued private companies in the space and, you know, end up going toe to toe to them and bringing them down. The, 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 the last thing I want to end on is about royalties. Cause I think, you know, before on the show, uh, we had a debate about royalties and I was, I was firmly on the side that, I thought royalties were going to go away, that they were going to be a thing of the past. And now I think we're basically there. I don't think there's anyone at this point who really seriously believes royalties, at least in the, in the state they were before. Obviously now you guys are enforcing, I think 50 BIPs royalties and, and OpenSea is doing the same. Um, but it's kind of like, uh, it, it's sort of like the royal family after the end of the monarchy, you know? Like they're sort of there as figureheads, but they, you know, they don't they don't really do anything anymore. Um, what do you guys think, ruin Robert, Tom, like, do you think this is good? This is bad? Are you disappointed? Are you like, hurrah, hurrah? How do you feel about the death of royalties? I I think it's
4: good and bad. So I think it's bad because I think it violates the original expectations and intent of a lot of the creators that made NFTs, right? Whether they are rightly or wrongfully thought that they were implementing royalties correctly, they expected royalties. So, I think doing away with them is fundamentally bad because even though, you know, their fault, they got had, right? (laughs) All the creators. (laughs) Like, because they're not as good technically as like the OpenSea and Blur development teams at Solidity. Okay. Like, the creators are on the losing end here. And I think that's fundamentally somewhat bad. I think long term, it's potentially good because it's going to force everyone to up their game and to build systems that actually work and are resistant to blur and are resistant to other platforms and implement the technology for royalties the way people expect or they're going to make fundamental changes and rethink it entirely but long term i think it's going to lead to sort of like a better end state but you know i kind of think it's you know a sad thing that royalties are going away, not from their own volition, but from the platforms, really kind of cutting off the artists and creators.
1: Tom, what's your take?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we were always in kind of a weird, like, unsteady equilibrium when it came to royalties, right? And we, we knew that something was going to shift. You kind of saw this stuff bubbling under the surface. The way it was in the past was kind of weird, where artists were almost sort of free writing and relying on these third parties, these, these exchanges to, like, generate revenue for them, when in reality, they should be thinking about how can I get buyers to want to pay royalties to me? Like instead of just there's, there's this third party transaction happening over here and I somehow get to continually skim, how can I actually build up a stronger relationship with the people who are going to be part of my community and like um, actually lean into that more? So I think it's a nice sort of wiping the slate clean and, and hopefully creating a new opportunity for people to think about what the futures of NFT economics um, are going to look like. Taron? I kind
3: of more am of the mindset that, you know, the market microstructure being more efficient means like you can start doing more clever things with NFTs. Maybe it's not like lending or perps because that's just like copy pasting an idea that exists, but maybe it's some notion of of like a different form of trading that just doesn't work at high royalties streams, right? Like, I mean, there's just there's just a ton of products that, work better when the slippage costs are lower and you know it it could be that it's something where there's a new product made to avoid slippage costs so you know like perps in some ways exist as the largest market in crypto because people wanted to avoid the spot trading costs and they wanted more leverage with low collateral right like kind of very simple needs it they also kind of were popular because spot trading fees were so much higher than perp trading fees for a long time Arguably, that's, that's sort of the Binance, how you know the Binance FTX kind of era of the last bear market was. And so I just think it's going to be more interesting to see what kind of, yeah, the future type of products look like. I do think there will be something like that has leverage, uh, but it'll only kind of work at like very low fees and some notion of how you can like fractionalize collections correctly and like only offer leverage on certain parts of them and not others.
1: There's a very there's a very mechanistic answer in line with Tarun, but how do you feel? How do you feel about the death of royalty? why is
3: that why is that such a bad thing? <laughs> like come on. I didn't say it's
1: a bad thing, but I just want to know it's a, it's an emotional response. What is your what does your heart tell you, Tarun?
3: So so I, you know, I, I used to make a lot of generative art. And a lot of my friends who I would meet at art conferences got really rich in twenty twenty one. A lot of them quit their jobs and we're like, hey, we're just going like, to live off our NFT art block streams and stuff like that. And you know, I feel like I was really happy for them. But I was always like, this seems unsustainable. And uh, yeah, the lottery ticket's over. I don't know. It just seems like the natural state <laughs> of nature. Like, they're all so angry. And every time I talk to them, I just like, I'm like, you, you don't realize that you won a lottery ticket. Right. Like I I just like take, take it and just like accept it. But somehow people want to pretend lottery tickets or annuities.
1: Yeah. Well, I'd say my take, like I said, I, when we were on that debate, I was probably the most vocal anti-royalty person, not because I think royalties are bad in and of themselves, but I just think they, they just don't really make sense. And they were always kind of doomed for this outcome Uh, unless they can be enforced on chain the the number one thing that you learn in blockchains is that if it's not enforced in the code, it's going to eventually go away. And I, I can't think of a single counterexample to that pretty much ever, that if this thing is not actually enforced by code, that it won't survive. And royalties were that. Royalties were basically a gentleman's agreement from a bunch of monopolists that they were going to keep paying the subsidy to artists. And eventually, economics and competition and all that stuff reared its ugly head, as it always does, and uh, all of a sudden the goodwill evaporated because people started to feel their market share under threat. And at the end of the day, I think the thing that it forces people to do is to innovate. That's always the answer. It's always, always, always the answer is to innovate. So whether it's innovating on the side of marketplaces, whether it's innovating on the side of artists, whether it's people trying to figure out different kinds of revenue streams that they can earn from their from their supporters and from their fans. Uh, I, I don't think it will ever be the case that like, oh, OpenSea is no longer charging Uh, They're no longer enforcing royalties. Therefore, artists are going to starve. Like, that's obviously absurd. That's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is that artists are going to have to find new ways to, despite the fact that markets are now becoming more efficient and trading fees are lower, uh, they're going to have to find new ways to engage their audiences, and they will step up to the task because that's what human beings do. So, Pac-Man, I want to give you the last word. How do you feel about the, uh, maybe let's call it the the assisted homicide of royalties?
0: Definitely feel fatigued and and somewhat regretful. You know, when when the the royalty debate first got very heated and obviously came out with the operator filter, you know, we try to have conversations with a few players in the space and you know just like lay it out and just be like, hey, like here's here's all the logic. Here's here's what we think is gonna happen. Here's what we think could maybe alter the course. And uh, like let's try to have a conversation with it about it. Ultimately none of those conversations were fruitful. There is basically zero interest in having a conversation. And I think now a lot of the players in the space kind of feels like OpenSea pulled the rug out from under them. And I just know that, you know, if those conversations were had, there could, there could have actually been a plan pushed forward that, that likely could have uh, been a different, you know, because multiple paths were possible. It's not like this was the only path possible. So I feel like there could have been a plan put forward that would have made everyone actually a lot, lot happier. I think it's very hard to adapt to changing metas, especially once you get used to existing metas, like everyone is at risk of that, you know, including ourselves, right? So it's very important to, I think, maintain like neuroplasticity, especially when it comes to the, the web three space, which is just the space changes on, on a week by week, oftentimes like day by day basis. And it's just very important to keep that in mind Um, Until you reach like a steady state, then you can't really get used to any sort of meta. And even once that that steady state is reached, who knows what new change is just going to change the meta. So, um, you know, I think we're we're here now. We can have productive conversations. I think that you know the the space will innovate. This is a really incredible primitive that hasn't changed. You know, I wish I wish it happened in a different way where I think people could have really been a lot more prepared than they were. But you know, we're here now, and I think that the like ultimately. NFTs survived the worst bear market in history and are really one of the only things that grew in that bear market. Ultimately, my belief is that NFTs are more accessible to the broader public than even tokens. I think that they're going to get bigger than tokens. I'm very excited about that future, and we're going to continue working to make that happen.
1: Honestly, I think in the long run, you guys did OpenSea a favor because competition, the one thing competition does, it makes everybody step their game up. It makes everybody get better, and that's true for OpenSea. It's obviously true for you guys now that OpenSea has really woken up to the threat that Blur is. And I think it's also true for creators that creators have to step up and they have to do more in order to earn their in order to earn their keep if they want to keep on their lottery ticket. Uh, they got to earn it every single day rather than just win it. Uh, at, you know when NFTs are uh, are going crazy,
0: and the consumers win at the end of the day. This all benefits them.
1: That's right. So Pac-Man, uh, thank you for walking us through your thinking at Blur. It's been incredible to see your guys' success and uh, wish you wish you and your competitors all the best. Thank you, sir. All right. That's it for this week. Signing off. Thanks everybody.